Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Um, welcome everybody to City Beautiful Church. We are in a series uh, called A Generous Common Life. Um, the, the kind of previous series, maybe early summer, we, we kind of came around this passage, Galatians 6, 1 through 10. And uh, after I used that, kind of just to make a point in a sermon, maybe like June, as, as one often does, I really felt like the Lord said there was more there for us to discover. So we've actually been in this, we're going to be in it for three months in total, just these 10 verses, or at least using them as a launch pad uh, for exploring different aspects of what it means for us to live in this generous common life. And uh, I feel like we've been putting it off for a little while, but we can no longer. Today we're going to be looking at the King James version of this passage. Here's the problem. Simultaneously, I love the King James. I love the, uh, the poeticism of it. Um, it is antiquated in that it's, uh, you know, uh, it skews towards uh, the masculine as, as opposed to uh, incorporating all of us. There's a couple things that are funny translations like, in uh, Ezekiel, it talks about unicorns, and that got everybody excited in the 1600s. But when they look at the word, they're like, it probably means this cow. That's what that is. Um, and I really wanted to read the, the King James in, in the proper Shakespearean accent, but I don't want to make fun of the Bible, so I'm in this hard spot as like a preacher who happens to be incredibly funny. So I'm just, I'm just going to read it, and I, I'm just going to read it. Um, and... Uh, it's just because it's good. It's really good. So um, here we are. King James, Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Brethren and sistren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men and women, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, how many of you maybe have like horrible flashbacks to being a child and being raised with the King James Version? You're like, ah, you know. Uh, but there's a, there's a poeticism here that I love in the King James that I think is worth blessing as we move on. Um, so for the past several weeks, we've, we've largely been focused on those first few verses, especially the seemingly paradoxical vision of communal life that Paul gives us when he says to carry your own load and to carry one another's burdens and exploring what is the interplay between those two things? What's mine to own? What's my personal responsibility? And what is my responsibility to you and you to me? And learning the skills that we need uh, in order to maneuver that paradox together. So even last week talked about learning how to listen incarnationally, how few of us truly know how to listen. And in a kind of hyper-tribalistic world that we live in today, it's an imperative skill for us to learn how to genuinely listen to one another that we don't lose ourselves in the other person's story or in their mess, but at the same time, we don't hold ourselves back from one another in this kind of fearful self-preservation. So we're going to be focusing now on kind of the latter few verses, and I especially want to look at verses 7 and 8 today. And so this is it in the message version, which is where we got the name for the series. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plans selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, 
eternal life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here and that you are with us and that you're for us, you are not against us. Lord, I thank you for every good gift that comes from you, whether we realize it or not. God, we recognize that so much of the spiritual journey is awakening to realize that you have been here this whole time and we were not aware of it. God, I pray that the more our eyes are opened, the more gratitude overflows, that we recognize the good things that we have that come from you, and we gladly offer back to you good things, not as a way to earn your favor, but in celebration of your generosity and your goodness to us. So today, Lord, I ask that you go before us, that you uh, make straight paths for us to be able to walk, to encounter who you really are, and that we might see ourselves in light of your love. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, so I record a podcast with my best friend, Landon. We did finished up season one earlier this year, and we're... Uh, hard at work working on season two. Um, and it's been this really wonderful exercise. I think of a lot of the things we've been talking about in this series. Landon um, is not at the same place that I am when it comes to faith, um, understanding ideas like God, religion, or whatever. And we decided rather than, you know, we were having these conversations for years anyway, and rather than creating a, another podcast of apologetics, which both of us don't like the fight, like, let's just have a, you know, an atheist and a Christian just duke it out, and people will love that, um, because argument changes people's perspective, obviously. I'm sure most of you are here because you lost an argument at some point. Raise your hand if you lost. You were like, I lost an argument. No, oh, wait. No one? Oh, weird. How many of you are here because you had an encounter with Jesus, probably through somebody else? Oh, like most of you? Cool. Okay. Anyway, so what we just set out to do... Um, is can we find this common place um, where maybe we're not coming from the same starting point, but we really love each other and we really like being around each other and nobody else wants to talk to us about this stuff. So how do we create um, that pursuit together of truth and of meaning? And one of the things that has been such a fruit in my life through this project has been really thinking about the why of our faith. I think problematically, a lot of us, we, we have these assumptions about a lot of the, the words and the ideas that we have in the Christian household, and they never go challenged because we've spent most of our time around other Christians. It goes like, do you believe in grace? I believe in grace. Yes, we all believe in grace. And you go, but what is that? And we don't quite know how to answer the question. And I think one of the helpful things that's going to be happening kind of as we kind of move down the road into this post-Christian society um, and we see this kind of this separation or that people, we're not taking for granted being Christian anymore, and indeed many people leaving the Christian faith, is that we're going to have what we believe filtered back through to us from people outside of the church, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I think to get other people's uh, perspective of what they see in Jesus and how they perceive us as Christians is going to be really important for us moving forward. Um, but to be able to sit with my best friend and work through some of these big ideas and say, what do I mean when I use this word? Like, what is the material reality of some of these ideas? Are these just good ideas that we agree on to make ourselves feel better, or is there an actual vitality to them? And we had a, we had a conversation about religion a while ago, um, because I often, somebody had asked me once, they said, do you think religion is necessary? And I said, I don't know if it's necessary, but I do think it's inevitable. We, as creatures, we just we will create religion. But what are we talking about when we talk about religion? Because I think a lot of people would say, well, they're spiritual, but not religious. Um, they, they are anti-religious or whatever it might be. And this is, this is kind of where I came to as we were talking it out, and I realized the truth of what I was saying kind of in that moment, saying, ah, oh, yeah, this is really helpful. I believe that good religion takes you beyond yourself without leaving yourself behind so you can experience life everlasting. I do believe that we're all religious. In the same way that everybody has faith, we all um, offer our attention to these highest ideals. We sacrifice our time and our resources to some sort of large idea 
that goes beyond ourselves. I think we're all religious too. We all have a way that we move through the world. We have a, a language. We have uh, rituals and practices. We have a belief structure um, that helps us to move through life. And the question is not to be religious or to not be religious. The question is, is it good religion or is it bad religion? Uh, which is also the name of a great punk band. Um, so bad religion, uh, I think bad religion is any kind of religion that takes you beyond yourself in, in the sense that you lose yourself in it. Bad religion erases who you are in the name of some sort of higher ideal. Um, or bad religion can also be something that affirms who you are today but never asks you to grow beyond yourself. I think that's also a bad form of religion. When it just says, you're okay just the way you are, there's no expectation for you to grow or change or have any sort of ideals. It becomes this kind of very sad nihilism. It's just like, this is all there is, just deal with it. So bad religion in some way either erases our present reality, who we are today, or bad religion erases our highest ideals and where we might go, our potential. And so I think good religion does this paradoxical thing where it invites us to go move beyond ourselves, to grow out of our egotistical sensibility, but not in a way that we leave ourselves behind, but that we continue to grow and we, we move along through the story, um, continually growing and expanding. And this is kind of us moving towards life everlasting. So the question becomes, what is God's intention for the journey of life? What is the context for the things that God asks us? I think a lot of times in bad religion, especially if it's about uh, rule following, you, you get from God what you maybe some of you got from your parents. It's just because I said so. Well, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. And there's this list of rules and expectations that you're made to keep because you're just supposed to be a good boy or a good girl. And that's kind of the extent of it. I think that's a really good example of bad religion. But I think good religion is, is asking, what's the context of the things to which God is calling us? When God does give us uh, boundaries, when God gives expectation, um, it's not that those things are bad. It's, it's asking, what is the goal? What is God working us toward? And when we can begin to ask those questions, we learn a little bit more to trust a God who is good and has the best intentions for us, that God is moving us through history to this inevitable conclusion that we become more like Christ. And I've come to realize that a lot of times it's not the practices of our faith that are bad, but it's our attitudes. It's the attitude that we have potentially been given by our community of origin or our family of origin. It's attitudes that we've learned through cynicism or despair. But the practices of the faith are not bad. And I think problematically for a lot of people who kind of go through this grand deconstruction um, that we find ourselves in today, they focus on the practices. Like prayer is meaningless or worship is meaningless or reading the Bible is awful or being in community or suffering that hour and a half on a Sunday morning. All of those, that's the problem. All of that stuff is the problem. But really probably what it is, it's our own hearts. It's our own posture and our desires and expectations of what we're looking for out of those things. And so what I'm going to do today, this has already been very convoluted uh, and it's 1041, um, is I'm going, to, I'm going to attempt to give you two visions of the journey of faith that we find throughout Scripture. Um, I'm going to talk, kind of lay over top of that what we see in Paul in Galatians 6 about sowing to the flesh and sowing to the Spirit um, and then hopefully give you this deeper understanding of what this good religion is that we're invited to participate in. So we're going to be looking, we're going all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 4. So if you know the story of Genesis well, you know that God created this good world, and he put people in that good world to take care of it, to make sure that it flourishes uh, to make sure that it continues to grow and expand. And the more that creation does its creation thing, the more God is glorified. And God establishes Adam and Eve to be these sort of caretakers, these primordial uh, farmers, like watching over the earth, making sure um, that they're taking care of it. But things go awry. There's deception is invited into Adam and Eve. 
their, again, their perspective, some of the lies that they're being told uh, by the snake change their perspective of God, of themselves, and their vocation. Um, and so they eat of the forbidden fruit. God is grieved. God casts them out of the garden, and it says that they moved east. And there's this pattern, especially in the ancient scriptures, whenever you see they move east, okay? Um, from generation to generation, every story ends with, and you'll see in this one in a moment, they move east, they move east, and it's always they're moving a little bit farther away from Eden. Um, Eden being the place of perfect relationship with God, um, a firm establishment of your identity, like you know who you are, and your vocation or your purpose, you know what you're there to do. And so this is the first generation um, after Adam and Eve are uh, cast out of the garden. This is Genesis 4. Uh, we won't read in the KJV. We'll just go good old NIV. All right, Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked in the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to... Shh. <laughs> this is holy scripture. She loves it. There's a little amen, little baby amen. His face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him could kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So there's a lot of ways to interpret this story. But one of the most fascinating things to me is that this story opens us up to these two archetypes for understanding the spiritual life, two kinds of meta-narratives that we see working throughout Scripture, and it's essentially the shepherd and the farmer, okay? So we've got Cain and Abel. We've got the shepherd and the farmer. And in, uh, in the ancient Near East, like in most ancient civilizations, there's kind of this battle between these two ways of being in the world, the kind of nomadic way of, of being in the world that tribes that would move from place to place, and then agrarian societies that would root themselves um, in a particular location and kind of allow time to happen around them. And I think these are two important models for us when we think about our own spiritual journeys, when we're considering, where am I at today? And what exactly am I moving towards? Where am I headed? And so the, the shepherd narrative is a lot of times how we think about time in, uh, in the West, that time is linear, that we move from one place to another place, and it moves forward in a straight line, and we're always looking to the horizon for the next thing, the better thing, the more fruitful thing, whatever it might be. And so we have this nomadic language for our spiritual journeys that we are pilgrims on a road, that we're moving from one place to the next, and God willing, we're moving towards um, his final uh, intention for us. We're moving towards heaven. But the other one I find is equally as fascinating, the kind of agrarian metaphor, that it's not about moving from one place to the next. 
It's about grounding ourselves in a particular location and actually working the ground, tilling the soil to see something happen. If for shepherds, time moves forward in a linear way, for farmers, time is cyclical, that we move through the seasons. There's the season of uh, tilling the soil and preparing. There's a season of uh, planting or sowing. There's the season of cultivating um, and the blossoms and pruning. And then there's finally a season for harvest. And you kind of do this over and over again. You kind of get this cyclical understanding of time. And so I love holding both of those visions in a creative tension when we talk about our journey of faith, that sometimes our journey of faith is like that nomadic vision of moving through time in a straight line from one place to the next, always chasing the horizon. But it can also look like rooting ourselves into a particular moment and a particular place, choosing to ground ourselves and allowing the seasons in our life to move around us. And there's this kind of co-creation when it comes uh, to farming where you're working with the seasons as they come by. You're learning to be sensitive to the soil, to, to, the, uh, to the temperature, to the rainfall, in order to see a truly beautiful crop grow. I think the other fascinating thing about this story is recognizing what is the intention of Cain and Abel when they bring this sacrifice to God. Um, so a lot of scholars will recognize that the word here that's used for offering, this is not a sin offering. They're not paying for any kind of sin. This isn't so that they can barter with God. This is the kind of offering that it, on, on its face is actually the same thing regardless of what the actual substance of the, the offering is. That it's supposed to be an offering of gratitude to God. This would be a bit more like how we tithe or how we should tithe anyway in my opinion, um, that we give to God of our first fruits as a recognition of all that he has done for us. We're not buying anything from God. We're not bartering with God. We're not trying to get God to forgive us. We're just saying, God, I recognize that everything I have comes from you. And so really, these are gifts of gratitude. Um, but one is given freely and out of humility with a deep recognition of what God has given to us. And the other is given perhaps begrudgingly. That's the kind of the, the subtle uh, context of what's happening here. So I want to talk about um, not the gift itself, but the attitude by which we give. Like I said, I think a lot of times we like to blame the institution or the practices of the faith, but really it might be our heart posture that's awry. And so uh, first let's focus on Cain and the Cain in all of us, that when we soweth to the flesh, as the King James says, we indulge our ego desires in the moment, which leads us to harvest sin. I think Cain went through the motions of religion. At some point, it was picked up. We sacrifice to God. This is what we do. And he just said, okay, fine. I'm just going to go through the motions of religion. Um, and then he's hurt when he's found out by Yahweh, that God says, well, your, your, your brother Abel gives out of this posture, but you don't Seen, you're just going through the motions. You're just doing the thing. And I think Cain, he, he has this bruised ego because he'd rather not be found out how many of us are in that same position where we, we would rather not be found out why we do the things that we do when it comes to cultivating our faith. Because we think, we still believe externally, if I'm a good little Christian boy or I'm a good little Christian girl, I'll just go through all the things. I'll show up on a Sunday morning. I'll tithe. I'll go to my community group. I'll do my daily devotional day by day. And I'll just do all the things, and that's going to be the thing that gets me into heaven or perhaps for many of us just helps us to avoid hell. Um, Cain, God was able to read Cain's heart, and he said, it's not about just doing the thing. It's about why you're doing it in the first place. And Cain's ego is bruised, and his response to that is to murder his brother. So we find the first generation after Adam and Eve, there's already uh, deceit, lying, and murder. And, you know, I think sin is one of these words in kind of a, a deconstruction era, post-deconstruction era, that we don't really like. It feels antiquated. It feels like this useless religious word. But I think it's another word that we have to begin to take seriously again, because a lot of times we'll hear, oh, there's actually no such thing as sin. It was just created by religious institutions to control us. It kind of falls in line with the whole, like, you're fine just the way you are and all this. And, um, 
I think what we have to understand is that sin is uh, this kind of offense against God or other people or even ourselves where we create separation, where we keep, um, we keep ourselves or other people small, where we wound other people, where we wound our relationship to God. And I think that's very real. And I think it's very grown up of us to recognize that sin is a real force in the world and not to try to delude ourselves that these are just um, imaginary creations of religious institutions trying to uh, control us. And so what we find is when our egos are bruised, these unrefined desires that we have of what we want out of life, our response to that whenever we, as Paul says, soweth in the flesh. Remember whenever Paul uses the word flesh, it really means something more like ego. It doesn't mean your body. God is not anti-body. Paul is certainly not anti-body. But in his world, he'd probably write it differently today, but in his world, when he uses the word flesh, he really means something more like sinful nature or ego desire. Um, a lot of times our response to trying to pursue our ego desire in the moment is that we enact violence upon one another, we invite violence upon ourselves, or we perhaps isolate ourselves, we pull away from other people, uh, we pull away from ourselves. And we see this kind of repeated in, uh, in James's letter. Um, this is probably a collection of little sermons that James gave to the early Christian community. But in James chapter 4, he really speaks out of this similar place. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So again, he's saying, look on the surface. Obviously, things are not going well. What's your desire? What's motivating you? Why do you do the things that you do? Are you just going about in this mechanical behavioralist mentality? Are you actually exploring the deeper desires in your own heart? You have desire. Are you desire but do not have? So you kill. You covet. But you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Our desires in life are shaped by what we pay attention to. Or another way to say it, you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. It shapes you, whatever you offer your attention to. And whatever you believe that attention is leading you, those things shape your desires. And if you, you fixate um, on whatever your ego wants, that you just want to gobble up experiences or you just want to be really successful or you just want to avoid suffering or whatever it might be, that deeper motivator inside of you that you'd rather not kind of have it exposed, that is shaped by what you give attention to, and then that shapes how you treat other people, how you relate to God, and how you relate to yourself. And that result, that harvest of sin, the violence and the isolation, is what we call hell. Um, I didn't grow up with the, the version of heaven hell that many of you have, um, but I, uh, after you know, over a decade of doing this, I kind of understand the, the visions that many of you were given that have a lot more to do with Dante's Inferno than they do um, the Bible. But I really appreciate, and what has been helpful for me is understanding heaven and hell um, in the way that the Eastern Orthodox Church do, that it's not a geographical location, like you can't dig down to the earth and you find hell. Although, the last episode of Ancient Aliens um, <laughs> was a doozy, and I highly recommend it. It was about how they're, they're not coming from up there, they're coming from down there. And there's a point where Giorgio, most of you know Giorgio, Giorgio goes, now if you were to say to me hollow earth theory, I'd say that's ridiculous. But if you said inner earth theory, I think that's a possibility. <laughs> it's like, this is the greatest show that we've ever created. Um, but you can't, like, hell is not this vision we have of like, it's, it was, that was symbolic language that they're using in scripture that because we're so literalist in our modern worlds, we think, oh, well, that's stupid. Like, obviously, there's no Satan in a burning pit of fire down in the basement of the earth, and then God is up in the firmament. Like, and, but they, they didn't really think that. That was just language they were using. Um, but the Orthodox talk about heaven and hell in terms of 
uh, presence and isolation. Um, that hell is separation. Hell is a place where God isn't. And hell is a place where we're isolated from God and we're isolated from other people. So C.S. Lewis has this wonderful image in The Great Divorce that hell is where people continually move farther and farther and farther away from one another. Now, when I kind of posit hell in that language, regardless of what you believe after you die, I think many of us in this room have experienced the realities of hell to some degree. We've experienced the loss of God or that separation from God, our source who defines us, who shapes our desires. We've, we've witnessed that isolation from other people where because we feed our ego desire, we hurt others and they begin to move away from us and we begin to move away from them. That's what we mean by sin. And we've witnessed hell within ourselves where we have allowed ourselves through our actions and the pursuit of our egotistical desires to shatter our own souls. And we find that we have no relationship to ourselves. That's hell. That's what we're talking about here. And I think that really makes me wake up to the reality that I need to see, am I sowing into the flesh or am I sowing into the spirit? Because I've tasted and seen hell and it's not, it's not my desire. That's not where I want to end up. What's the other half of this then? That when we soweth to the spirit, we work with God to become more like Jesus day by day, harvesting the fruit of heaven. So if Cain was just kind of going through the motions of religiosity, just doing the things that he thought was expected of him, and he gets found out, and out of that bruised ego, he decides from jealousy to kill his brother. Abel was humble before God. The Abel recognized the gift of life itself. Abel did not give uh, automatically. Abel did not give because it was just what was expected of him. Abel gave out of a generous heart and a deep sense of gratitude for everything that God, that God had gifted him with. And that's what God looks at. We see this time and again. There's this constant wrestling throughout Scripture of like, how do we do sacrifice and what are we supposed to do and what are all the little details because we need to get this right. And then even by the end of the Old Testament, a lot of the writers are going, man, I don't know if that's really what God cares about. This beautiful line in Psalm 51 when David has been found out, right, in his ego desire that he sees Bathsheba. He has Bathsheba's husband sent to the front line, so he's murdered so that he can take Bathsheba as his own. And then it's not until his friend Nathan comes along and convicts him of, of his sin, what he just did, that he writes Psalm 51, which is, I think, one of the most pivotal scriptures in the Old Testament. And he says, I would make sacrifice to you, um, but that's not what you want. A broken and contrite heart is what you desire. See, David had entered into this very particular form of hell where he was isolated from himself. His soul was ripped open by these ego desires that he, he had somebody else killed. He took another woman for his wife. And it wasn't until someone else pointed it out that he was able to recognize, like, I'm broken on the inside. I've lost contact with myself. I, I have forsaken worship of God uh, to begin to worship my own throne and my own sense of power. But Abel sets this trajectory for being humble in recognizing that everything we have is a good gift, in allowing our worship of God to shape our desires, that we give freely. We, we are generous with our lives. We are humble in how we move through the world. And I love that we see kind of in the way the message is shaped that this passage we're focusing on today, um, it's a coordinated effort. Let me read it to you again. The, per, the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. So there's this coordinated, coordinated effort. I think as Protestants, we, we got ourselves in this weird place after the Reformation where we're so adamant about faith, not works, that we work very hard to be saved by faith, not works. And it's like any time that you do any kind of work, you're obviously just trying a workspace righteousness. So you just need to have faith. And faith means that you're not allowed to do anything. And then you're 
But, you know, it's like we've done our, it's just like it's this whole mess for 400 years that most of you probably don't actually care about, but it's the things that I care about a whole lot. Um, Your salvation is a coordinated effort between you and the Spirit of God. You got to show up and you got to do some work. This is what the Bible says. And you also know this from your own personal life. And I like this this gardening metaphor, like we till the soil and plant the seeds, but God is the one that helps it to grow within us. The Spirit does the transforming work as we're paying attention, as we're walking uh, from season to season with this careful attention to where we're at and what is actually most needed. And I love these gardening metaphors that we find throughout Scripture. They mean so much to me because we see this co-laboring. Any of you that, that garden or maybe have house plants, and that's the best you can do. Um, you know, you, they are quite hard. Yeah, get, get a ZZ plant. They're, you can't kill them. Um, wouldn't that be nice if that was like our souls? It's like, can't kill it. Just sits there. I don't water it. I don't do anything with it. It's still fine. You know, that's not true. That's not how it works. Um, but this sense of co-laboring, like you can't fight against the season that you're in when you're gardening, Right? So we're in the middle of October. We've just kind of passed uh, the planting season for the fall in Florida, and then you'll be able to do your lettuces and potatoes, which I know you're also excited for, kind of November through February, and then you'll start again. So now is not a good time to plant okra. Not that any of you would plant okra, but it's not a good time. It, it, you're, you're fighting against the reality of the season. Now, how many times do we do that, right, that we... We, we are not sensitive to the season that we're at in life, and we're insistent. No, this, by golly, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to plant. It does not work. You also can't just plant according to the proper season and then just leave it untended to. So you can't, you know, you do everything you're supposed to, and a couple weeks ago you kind of planted your, your, your mint and your cilantro and your tomatoes or whatever it is, and then you just leave it until December, and you come out and you're like, oh, that's so weird, I don't have any tomatoes. It's like, yeah, because you didn't take care of it. Like the season did its job, the climate did its job, but you didn't show up to tend to that day after day. And I I think a lot of times that's what happens with our faith journey as well, is maybe we planted seeds, but we were so inattentive to it that we come back and all we've got is a whole bunch of weeds. We've got dead plants because we never really took care of it. There's this sense of co-laboring when you garden, that there's a constant attention, but you're working with the earth itself. You're working with the climate in order to see fruit grow. And I think that that's what our spiritual journeys are like. And so if hell is a sense of isolation from God, from other people, and from ourselves, then we can understand that heaven is where we are in perfect union with God, when we're in union with other people, and when we're in union with ourselves. And so many of us, we've, we've tasted hell. We know what that's like. But many of us, we've also tasted heaven. We know what it's like to be so open before God and to experience God's presence that everything feels like it's going to be okay. And many of us have experienced that sense of closeness to another person. When you, you know in that moment you, like, you felt like you were actually seen for the first time? Where it's like we talked about last week, Brian Augsburger says being heard is so close to being loved that it's practically the same thing. And you've had that moment in your life where someone actually listened to you and looked at you in the eye and you're like, yeah, this is heaven. I could do this for the rest of my life, being this open. Or maybe you had that that beautiful, broken revelation of who you are, that you actually saw yourself for the first time, that your heart, your mind, your soul all kind of glimpsed each other, maybe for the first time. And you were doing that inner work of discovering what's going on inside of me. What is it that motivates me? Why do I keep entering into these sinful patterns that I just end up hurting myself or hurt other people? And you had this revelation. It's like everything came together. And you're like, ah, yes, this, this too is heaven. We've all tasted hell. We've all tasted heaven. These, these kind of esoteric Christian ideas don't just float around in the ether for us to beat up people and create these strong institutions to control people. They're, they're realities. These are real things that we walk through. And I think it's important that we're recognizing where we are at today 
but we also need to understand where it is that we're headed. I think a lot of times our ego desire is that we're fulfilling whatever our need is in the moment. It's kind of like just being hungry in the moment so we feed ourselves. But we have this, we have this, this desire that boils up out of us that we all, all we, it's like we have blinders on. Like all we want is just to do this thing right now. And that's the thing that ends up hurting other people or hurting ourselves. So we also need to kind of have this grand vision of where it is that we're headed. And I think this is the thing that tragically a lot of us have had robbed from us is not knowing where are we going? What does this look like at the end? This co-laboring with the spirit of Jesus to see something come of my life. So I think we taste little bits of heaven now in order to receive heaven at the end of time. We need vision for where it is that we're headed. And we need why. Because that gives us the courage to face the brokenness that we experience today. It gives us the courage today to recontextualize the suffering that we experience. You realize when you're feeding your ego desire in the moment, so much of what you are is just about mitigating suffering. Like That's the highest ideal. That's all you can hope for. It's like, if I could just avoid suffering, then I've done my job. And maybe that means that you cut out the risk of being around other people and you isolate yourself. Maybe that means that you don't try too hard or have any real dreams for what you could make of your life. Like you're always like kind of keeping things small and calculated so that if you can get out of life without any suffering, that's the ultimate goal. But I guarantee you when you know where you're headed, when you know the purpose of your life, you will suffer really well. We've talked about it a lot in this series. Like, you're going to suffer no matter what. And the question becomes, are you going to suffer well? Or are you going to continually fight against that reality and pretend like it's not true? But when you know where you're headed, and if you know what God is doing in you and through you, if you know what this looks like when God wraps up this whole project, you're going to find so much tremendous joy in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of recognizing almost, I was talking about this the other day to somebody, the gap between where I am today and my highest ideals. There is a sense of joy in being found out. There's a sense of joy in being exposed before the Lord to recognize where our ego desire has taken over, that we've hurt other people. There's a joy in that whole process because we realize that it's working for our good. And we maintain this sense this ridiculously high vision of where we're going. It's like the poet Robert Browning said, ah, but if a man's reach does not exceed his grasp, then what's a heaven for? And you should never let anybody rob you of the vision for heaven. The challenge for you today is to be unreasonable in your expectations of where God is going to take you in this life, of what God plans to do within you and through you. So these two archetypes that we see in Cain and Abel, shepherding and farming, they help us to frame the journey. But we also see those two archetypes redeemed by Jesus. That Jesus is the good shepherd, but Jesus is also the sacrificial lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. That he is taking us to these new horizons, these new lands of bounty. He is protecting us. He is providing for us, but he also sacrifices himself for us. He suffers well on our behalf. And we see that Jesus is the vineyard owner. Jesus is the new Adam come for the flourishing of all creation. But Jesus is also the vine. That is the blood of Jesus poured out for us that gives us new life. And so Jesus, uh, the, the agrarian, Jesus the farmer, is constantly sensitive to the season that we're at in life. He's pruning us. He's feeding us as the seasons demand. He's plucking the weeds out of our lives so that we can be fruitful, so that we can grow to be who God has created us to be. And so we're going to um, enter into a time of prayer uh, together where we're going to pray a prayer of confession that many of you uh, should be somewhat familiar with. Um, and I know a lot of people are quite nervous with confession. Again, because your ego would rather cover over that and hide it and stuff it all down and pretend like that's not real, even though that's why you keep doing what you're doing. Um, I find it really, 
uh, it's a relief to me to confess, to God, at least to God, maybe not to you. Like, I hate confessing to you because uh, you're all really judgmental of me. Um, but I, there's a relief. Like, I, I was in a spiritual direction session with somebody this week, and I said, the nice thing about being a hypocrite is that as soon as you, you are one, you're not one. Being, being a hypocrite doesn't mean, like, oh, I say one thing and then I do another. Like, everybody does that. That's being a human being. It's if I refuse to admit that there's a gap between the highest calling of my life, the highest ideals, this perfection that we're called to in Christ, and then the reality of my life today. If I refuse to admit that there's a gap, I'm a hypocrite. But as soon as I say I'm a hypocrite, I'm recognizing there's a gap, and it's all gone. And that's the beauty of confession, is that we receive forgiveness. So we're going to pray, and it's, I'm hoping this is going to work. We're going to, I broke this prayer down into chunks, um, where we're going to pray a piece together, and then there's a question that I'm going to ask you to sit with, and just dialogue with the Lord. See what the Lord has to say to you there um, before, we, before we move on into the next portion. Um, and then I will declare your sins forgiven and we will continue in worship. So let's pray everything in italics. We're going to pray. We'll read together. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. So I want you to sit with this question. What egotistical desires have I been sowing recently? What have I been chasing in my flesh? And next, we say together, by what we have done, and by what we have left undone. So consider, what have I failed to do that I knew was good and right? Next, we say together, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So what sins have you committed against those who are close to you? And we say together, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. So I want you to pause and to consider, am I even able to receive God's forgiveness? Am I able to forgive myself? next, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. What is the vision for your life? Is it to pursue heaven? Where are you headed? Or is it only about today? And I want you to take this moment and just in the quiet of your own heart, I want you to confess those things to God, trusting that he hears you. He knows these things. They're not a surprise to him. But there's something about when we say it to him that we're coming to terms with the material reality of a present moment. And through that confession, we're able to receive forgiveness that enables us to just do better today, to move forward, to not get bogged down in these egotistical desires that seem to rule us.
that cause us to hurt other people, that cause us to hurt ourselves, that break our intimacy with God. But as we receive forgiveness, it shores up in us a commitment to continue to pursue heaven. So I want you just to take a moment and confess your sins to God. I'll invite you to stand with me. And part of the the honor of standing where I am is to be able to declare um, that God has forgiven you of your sins, Um, which is to say that we have tremendous trust that he is faithful um, and we'll see this through to the last day of continuing to rescue and redeem us. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.